Thank you for listening to the Sunday School Teaching Ministry of Pastor Luke Pollock at the Home Church of Lodi, California. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. Our prayer is that this message from God's Word will renew your heart and mind today. We're launching into a new study, the book of Ecclesiastes and the Song of Solomon, when we're done with the Ecclesiastes. One of them talks about the search for meaning in life. The other, the search for meaning in love, which makes them both very uh, incredibly relevant for every human being in all time, in every era of history. And both of them are written by Solomon, the King Solomon, under the inspiration of God. These are God's words to us through Solomon. So let's begin looking at the theme and the purpose of Ecclesiastes as we launch here. But before we do that, let me, let me just say this past week, with all of this in my mind as I've been studying and thinking about Ecclesiastes, I was watching an interview from a former football player who failed miserably in the NFL. But he was, he was a great college star. He was a standout, amazing, amazing player, won the Heisman Trophy. Everybody thought he was going to just do incredible in the NFL. Great expectations, but as soon as he came out of college and was drafted in the NFL, he said in this interview, he said, I had a huge just feeling of emptiness. He'd gotten everything he wanted, money, fame, pleasure, but the emptiness of all of that hit him like a freight train. He was trapped by a prison of dissatisfaction. Um, he, there was nothing he could think of that could make him happy. He tried a lot of stuff, and he literally self-destructed. He turned to booze, drugs, partying. He, he absolutely just ruined his life. And this was his way of trying to escape from the nothingness of life. He'd had a, he had everything, but he had nothing. Now, we've all heard those stories. We hear those stories again and again. People getting to the pinnacle and, ex- and experiencing nothing at the top, just emptiness. Uh, just yesterday at our men's breakfast, Matt Gomes shared his testimony. And uh, I was so delighted to hear that once again. But it, as he mentioned, in his late 20s, he had a good life by all accounts. He felt uh, materially happy, but, but there was just something missing. There was just these deep sinking feelings that there was something more. And so just one day sitting outside, he talks about in his backyard, there was just, he had to deal with the big questions of life. There's more, there's more, there's more out there than just this. The stuff of life did not bring satisfaction, and it cannot. This is such a common human feeling. George Bernard Shaw, maybe one of the most renowned atheists and free thinkers and liberal philosophers, in his last writings, look what he said. Listen very closely. He said, the science to which I pinned my faith is bankrupt. Its councils, which should have established the millennium, led instead directly to the suicide of Europe. I believed them once. In their name, I helped to destroy the faith of millions of worshipers in the temples of a thousand creeds. And now they look at me and witness the great tragedy of an atheist who has lost his faith. See, here's the thing. You remove God from the picture. You remove God from someone's life and you end up with chaos. You end up with confusion. You end up with a whole lot of 
nothingness and a life that's going nowhere. The people around you every day, the people that you come in contact with, the people at work, the, the friends that you have, the family members, they are empty if they are trying to find answers where there are no answers, and that is the world. They, we, the people search for answers in pleasure, in money, in relationships, in science, in education. They look for answers from people like George Bernard Shaw. They look tell me something, tell me something that means something. They look for answers anywhere but God, it seems like. As long as I don't have to look for God, then I'm sure I'll find something. And as long as people are only looking down for their answers, then they will end up puzzled and then just going in circles. Because the stuff that happens here in this life is confusing. It really, really is. Um, good people sometimes die early. And bad people sometimes live very long lives. Drug addicts have families, while godly women are barren. The selfish and the cruel get rich, and the kind and the giving remain poor. Life down here is a puzzle, um, and, it's, and it confuses us. And so if I'm looking for answers here, I'm just not going to find it. So how... Are we going to find meaning in all of this craziness? Well, that is the reason to study the book of Ecclesiastes and why it's so relevant today. See, Ecclesiastes is so honest. It acknowledges the, the most basic human feelings that we all feel at times, that emptiness, that confusion of life and the aimlessness of things. But Ecclesiastes is so amazing because at the same time that it acknowledges all those feelings, it also gives the answer. But there's, that there is no meaning and no fulfillment in this life without God. And so this amazing book of the Bible takes us on a journey to actually not just know that, but to really understand it. And not to just understand it, but to really feel it. Ecclesiastes, God wants you to feel this book. So let's dig in. A few things to know about this book because there are some who misinterpret what God says in this book and they run in wild directions. For example, they'll pull a verse out of the air and say something like, see, the Bible says that there's no meaning in life. <laughs> everything's, everything's vanity, for example. And they don't take the time and the energy to properly understand it and put it into the full perspective and look at the big picture of the book. So these are very important keys to understanding uh, this book if we're gonna get it. Number one is that the perspective of the book is physical. So it's written from a perspective of life without God. So as we read through, we're thinking this is all uh, what a person would think if they take God out of the picture. You see the phrase, under the sun, over and over again. In fact, it's used over 25 times in this book. And it just means somebody who's looking at life without an eternal perspective. The book is a journey of a man who's looking for meaning in life under the sun only. He's not looking above the sun. He's not looking anywhere in the heavens. And so this is what people, as I mentioned, are doing around us all the time. They refuse to look above the sun. They're only looking for meaning under the sun. Everybody's in a race, and they're trying to find something meaningful here. Now, so when we, take, when we realize that about the book of Ecclesiastes, we have to understand that the subjects of eternity, the gospel, heaven, hell, those are all sermons for another day. 
As we look into the, the book of Ecclesiastes, we're gonna really try to get into what the mind of a person just looking under the sun is thinking. So the, the perspective is physical. The, the style, as my dad just mentioned a moment ago, is poetical. It's poetical. See, the book asks and answers life's biggest questions in a very artistic way. As I mentioned, God wants you to not only know these things about how there's, meaning, there's no meaning in this life, it's only above the sun, but he wants you to feel that. And a, because if you feel it, if it really gets down deep in us, that there really is truly just only emptiness here, we have to look for God. If we truly feel that, then we'll love God's answer at the end of this book even more. And then, see, he's painting a picture. God's painting a picture in this book. It's, he's taking the scenic route to get us to this amazing end, this ma- amazing point. And you see, it's, it's not written, this book is not written from a typical Jewish logical sequence. The Jews thought linear. It's in a line, in a straight line. Each chapter of the book, each chapter building on the last chapter. It's just kind of one step at a time. But that's not this book. Um, it's more like, when we, as we read through Ecclesiastes and go through it, we're going to see it's more like a bunch of circles. It kind of takes us around in circles, but all kind of ends up back at the same point. So there's all these circles that all end up back where we need to be. So why is it written like that? Why is the style like that? Well, God wanted it to be like that, I think, because the style of the writing itself, listen, the style of the writing itself mirrors the confusion of life. It mirrors the fact that we, we're in this aimless sort of vanity in this life and things just sometimes don't make sense. It's not linear always. It doesn't feel like it's always exactly how it should be and logical. This life is illogical sometimes. I don't get it. I don't know why babies die. I don't understand why all these things happen. I don't get it. But that's why God's gonna take us into these circles but then always come back to one central point that is so key and so important for us. I noticed this kind of artistic thinking in, in Christian songs. Have you ever noticed this? If um, a song that's about heaven is usually an upbeat song, almost always. It'll be upbeat, it'll be happy, because we're talking about heaven. And so the style mirrors the theme. A song about the cross is gonna be a little more serious and have minor tones. The music and the lyrics, if you're gonna have a good Christian song, the music and the lyrics need to match. And that's what happens here. The style along with the theme match. Now once you understand that, it's easier to interpret and the things that are said in this book because parts of this book will look like it contradicts other parts of, of Scripture. When we read through it, it'll just first look like, wait a second, that can't be right. The Bible cannot say that. But it, it does because what it's t- telling us is this is an artistic look at how people think. It's, a, it's taking us on a journey through the mind of a human outside of God. And he will get to the point. Now the last thing is this, and that, that, that is that the conclusions are experiential. So what that means is, in other words, that this is not just somebody giving opinions. This is a book from someone with experience. He is speaking from experience. Uh, Solomon tried everything that is supposed to make a person feel satisfied under the sun. If you could think of something that typically people would think, this would satisfy me if I had this. Solomon tried it. And if you think about it, only the only man maybe in all of history who had the perfect trifecta of means, power, and opportunity to do this level of experimentation. I mean, who, who in the world could have done everything Solomon did? He was the smartest man who ever lived. He had the absolute power of a king. He could do anything he wanted as king. 
He lived in a time of peace, so he really didn't have uh, the burden of war on his hands. I mean, he could literally could just do, had the time to do anything. And he had more wives than anyone ever, who ever existed, which, which gave him access to experiencing all kinds of religions and knowledge that most people never could ever even get because these, these marriages often were, uh, were to obtain peace with neighboring nations. So he had these people, these ladies coming in from all over and uh, the experiences are overwhelming for Solomon. Solomon shows us in this book that he tried intellectualism, he tried hedonism, that is pleasure giving himself to whatever he wanted, and then materialism. He tried everything. And the point of this all is, if, if Solomon can't answer the questions about meaning in life, then no one can. If Solomon can't find meaning in life on this earth, then nobody can. So, let's open the book. And the first thing out the gate is the theme for this entire book. Here we go. The primary theme of the book of Ecclesiastes is that life is vain under the sun. Life is vain under the sun. Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. So based on these words, there's, there's very little doubt that this was written by Solomon himself. He calls himself the preacher. Hebrew koheleth. Now that word, preacher there, doesn't just mean somebody who tells forth. Actually, in Hebrew, what it means is one who assembles, a collector of sentences, a deep investigator. It is the the Greek translation, so it's written in Hebrew originally, and that's what that koheleth, that's what this word preacher means. In Greek, if you were to translate this word into Greek, the word is ecclesiastes. And that's where we get the name of this book. And that word, Ecclesiastes, means one who convenes an assembly. So it's one who gathers people together to tell them something, to tell them something he's learned. By the way, Ecclesiastes, the Greek word, uh, ekklesia, is the word where we get the word for church. Uh, Called out assembly, that's the Greek word for church. It's an assembly where someone's giving something, a preacher is telling something Uh, Gathering a group and telling uh, a truth. Now the word implies that he's gathering a group to teach them something important about life. And it's not that just he's a philosopher. Even though this is kind of philosophical book, it's not saying I'm a philosopher and we're just going to sit around and ask questions and then you're going to go home with just questions in your mind. That's not what this is about. He is a preacher, which means he's going to give answers to the questions. You're going to walk away at the end of this whole thing with some great answers. And he begins with the premise and the main idea of this whole book, verse 2. Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher, vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What profit hath a man of all his labor, which he taketh under the sun? So there you go. I hope everybody's encouraged this morning by the thing that the preacher has learned. He says, here's what I've learned, everybody, by all my time and going through all of this life and doing everything I've done. That all is vain, all is vain. It is emptiness, this is a bunch of nothingness. But he's not just stating that half-heartedly here. He is preaching it with force. Verse two, he says, vanity of vanities, and he says it twice, and then another time with vanity. It's vanity of vanities. That phrase is something like we see in the Old Testament where uh, in in the tabernacle, if you go all the way into the most holy place, the Bible calls that most holy place, 
the holy of holies, the holy of holies, meaning the most holy of all holies. And so that's what uh, Solomon is saying about life. It is vanity of vanities. It is the most vanity of all the vanities you could ever imagine. It's hard for us today in our language to grasp the force. I mean, he's saying everything under the sun is the emptiness of all emptiness. It's absolute nothingness. It's a handful of air. It's a handful of nothing. I like how Matthew Henry tried to help us understand it. Here's what he said. Look at this. He says what, he, what Solomon is saying is they are not only vanity, but vanity of vanities. The vainest vanity. Vanity in the highest degree. Nothing but vanity. Such a vanity as is the case of a great deal of vanity. <laughs> Thank you, and now I get it a little more. Another Bible commentator said this. He said it's, what he was saying was it's life is a wisp of vapor, a puff of wind, a mere breath. Nothing you could get your hands on. The nearest thing to zero. That is the vanity that this book is about. So Solomon starts by saying, yep, that is what life under the sun is. It is, when I look at the whole thing and everything I've tried to get my life into, it's, it's nothing. There's just nothing to it. This phrase is used uh, is, uh, over 30 times. It's a big, this vanity, it's, it's a big theme in the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, when we, th- when we first hear that, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, all is vanity. That sounds very depressing. But again, it's helping us see a very important point. Take everything in the world that we chase after and be honest. All the things that you stress about, all the things that you're worried about right now in your life, all the stuff under the sun that we so go after, and let me, let me ask this question. If you were to have all of it that you ever wanted today, would you never again have another bad day? Would you then be fully and forever happy, content, completely satisfied deep in your soul? You'd never, never be unhappy ever again. Is that how this thing works? You know, like we talked about, most people who reach the pinnacle of earthly success, they almost all report a deep sadness, something that they can't explain. I've reached everything I was going for, but it didn't fulfill. There was, just a, there was just something, it was just empty. And it's, a, it's that now what feeling, now what? N- now what? We're all in the same boat. See, then the preacher asks in verse three there, what profit then is there for all the effort that we put into this life? What, what, when my, with my work, my labor, what, what's the point of it then? We spend our lives working and we spend our lives doing stuff, but what ultimately do we get in the end from all the work that we put in? You know, if you think about our lives, we leave it to somebody, we work and work and work and work, and then we leave all of our stuff and our money to somebody who doesn't give a rip how much we worked. (laughs) Because guess what? They have their own life to worry about. Solomon uses the term, a business term here, he uses profit. If I put everything into my life, if I just work so hard every day and put everything, do I really get a, a profit at the end of my life? Is, is, the, is the balance sheet up for me? When you subtract all the pain, I love how somebody put this, if you subtract all the pain from all the pleasure of life, do you come out on top? Do we really come out on top? Is, there really, is it really so much better? Similar to what Jesus said in Mark 8 and verse 36, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his own soul? 
So Solomon is asking the same thing as any thinking person, if they're really stopping to think, what's the point of going to work and making money? What is, <laughs> I love somebody said, you live for a while, somebody, somebody asked a fellow, why do you go to work? Well, to get money, of course. Well, why do you want money? To buy food. Well, why do you want food? To maintain my strength. Well, why do you want strength? So I can go to work. <laughs> right back where we began. This is just a big circle. What's the point? Someone said at the end of the rat race, guess what? You're still a rat. <laughs> you know, Mark Twain, uh, of course, in his way, the feeling, he, this is what he wrote shortly before his death. A myriad of men are born. They labor and sweat and struggle. They squabble and scold and fight. They scramble for little mean advantages over each other. Age creeps upon them. Infirmities follow. Those they love are taken from them, and the joy of life is turned to aching grief. It, the release, that is death, comes at last. The only unpoisoned gift earth ever had for them. And they vanish from a world where they were of no consequence. A world which will lament them a day and forget them forever. That's what we're talking about. One scholar said the best definition of the word vanity here in this book is the word puzzling. This whole life thing that we're living in is puzzling. It's frustrating because it doesn't seem to follow any rules or lead anywhere. See, most people say, don't say this part out loud. The world will not say this part out loud. Very few out there in the world are willing to face these questions head on. It's too painful. You know, we go out soul winning and we ask people about their eternity. And we have the little Pastor Mike's question, uh, track, the, the question. It's an interesting way that we approach that. If you were to die today, where would you spend eternity? I've asked that so many times to so many people. And a lot of people will say, well, I haven't ever really thought about that. I said, what? In my head, I can't fathom that. I know they have but they push it away, push it away, push it away. I don't want to think about that. I don't want to think about the big questions in life. And many people have thought about it and they don't know what to say. I hope my good, way, good deeds outweigh my bad deeds is, is the typical answer. Because when people have to face this, then they have to admit that there's something beyond this or they have to admit that, or they have to believe there's no God and that's really hard to do. And if, and if I admit that there's a God, then I have to admit that, that there's a God morally speaking and I don't get to do what I want and he's in control. Americans are expert at using their prosperity and their pleasure to drown out the big questions in the mind. But the Bible, this is why the Bible is so amazing. The Bible does not shy away from the big questions of life. It is. Solomon faces those questions head on and then later gives solid, real answers. And this is why this is such an important book for this time in history. And even more, as I was studying this, I, I listen everybody, this, I think this book is so important for right now in our, in our uh, witnessing and who we talk to in this world. I think this, is, this book is absolutely one of the most relevant ways to think right now. Because today, at the center of everyone's universe, it, the, the mindset of people is, it's all about me. And we, everyone's encouraged, you're encouraged, and I'm encouraged to have anything that you want. And you're allowed to have anything you want, and you should be able to have anything you want, as long as, we're, as, long as you're happy. 
If you want to be a man, great. If you want to be a woman, great. Or anything else that you might decide that you want. There are no rules. You can just do whatever you want. It's almost a crime to tell someone, and it might be a crime soon, and it is a crime in some places, to tell somebody that their life choice is wrong and to not call them by their preferred uh, pronoun or whatever. And so it is, if it's a crime for me to tell you that this is not true, this is where Ecclesiastes comes in so beautifully. Because instead of just hitting them over the head all the time, think about this. It, it, this book powerfully and wisely asks the question, if you were to get then everything that you wanted, if you were to go down that road and go ahead and follow that path that you're thinking about, would you then be forever satisfied deep in your soul? Do you think that'll lead to a great place for you? Why, why are there so many messed up rich people? And, and can anyone ever really bring meaning to their life and fulfillment under the sun here? Can you, can you get it by yourself? What if we started leading our coworkers and friends to think of it in this way? You see, this book, Ecclesiastes, is not necessarily to edify the believer, as somebody said, but it's to evangelize the unbeliever. It never uses, in fact, it's very interesting, this book never uses the name Jehovah um, in the book, which is the covenant name of Israel. It almost purposely leaves that name out. The only name of, for God that's used here is the generic name for God, and that is Elohim. Because this book is not a, just a book for the Jews or one group of people. It applies to all the people of all the world. It is meant to get at, it's meant to get the conversation started on the road to everybody seeing their need for Jesus, <laughs> their need for the Lord, their need for something more, the emptiness of everything that's here. One Bible scholar uh, called it, it's an essay in apologetics, and it really is. And now we'll see how Solomon does that. He gets everybody to see the vanity of life in real living color, in detail. First he starts with how life's monotony, monotony is even pictured in the world of nature around us. Here we go, some examples from nature. Verse four, one generation passeth away, and another generation cometh, but the earth abideth forever. So he's already said this life is vanity, and he says, let me use an example of how you see this in nature. You have a generation that it comes up, and then that generation dies, and then the earth just keeps going. Life under the sun is just a cycle of cradles and coffins. There's 4.3 births every second and 1.8 deaths every second. I don't know how that works, but that's how it works. Whole, whole generations come and generations go, and the earth just keeps spinning. The earth doesn't stop because billions of people die. I remember having those thoughts when people that have died whom I love, almost offended that the earth is still going on and people are still going about their business and people are still going to work. I, I remember, I literally, I would see the random people, you know, driving, and think, why are you driving right now? <laughs> you should not be driving. This, my, my, my mom just passed away. My whole life has come to a halt. Why are you people just going about your life? Why are you, why are you going to work? Why are you doing this? You know, life does not stop for anyone. I don't care how important you think you are. It's an endless, monotonous cycle that never changes. Life doesn't care about the work you do. Life doesn't care. The world doesn't care about the money that you have or how great you think you are, the stuff that you're trying to attain right now. The world doesn't care. You know, here it men mentions generations and generations come and generations go. It made me think, you know, they call those who were born in the 1900 to 1925, 
the greatest generation. Those are those who fought in World War II. And I have the greatest respect for them. But you can call those, those folks the, great, the greatest, you can call them whatever you want to call them, but guess what? They will all leave and the world will keep spinning around. Verse five, the sun also ariseth and the sun goeth down and hasteth to his place where he arose. The wind goeth toward the south and turneth about unto the north. It whirleth about continually and the wind returneth again according to his circuits. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. Unto the place from whence the rivers come, thither they return again. <laughs> Solomon says, look at the cyclical nature of life. The sun rises and sets predictably every single day. The wind goes in its cycles with the seasons, north, south, whatever, whatever time it is, that's what the wind's gonna do and you can't, you can't stop it. The rivers, they bring water from the mountains into the sea. Then it goes into the sea, the water evaporates, clouds form, and then guess what? The rain dumps in the mountains again and the rivers come down and go into the ocean and then evaporates and we have just this cycle. The earth cycles just keep going and going, a monotonous humdrum of emotionless activity. Choo, 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 just life, just the world spinning and spinning and spinning and stuff coming and stuff going and it just goes over and over and over and over. Take God out of your life and nature and everything in this world just reminds you of the drudgery and meaninglessness of going about life, just going to work, going, going home, going to work, going home, doing my thing day after day after day. And this is the difference. Remember, Solomon is describing a godless view of life. Cultures back then had their, the whole view of life in a, a cyclical way. This is what he's referring to. Egypt and the Greeks even later had this. They view the whole life as cyclical. It's, it's all in a cycle. But the Hebrews, again, had a linear view of life, and this is important. They believed that in the beginning, God created. There is a beginning to life, and then there is a purpose to this world, and then there's an ending, and then, then there's eternity. And this is what God has set up. And so under the sun, it just looks like a meaningless cycle of nothingness. But when you get above the sun, you realize God has a plan for everything. It takes us away from all this purposeless existence. And a quick note, today's concept of evolution bring, uh, breeds this meaninglessness in the hearts and the minds of people. Think about it. If, if I'm telling somebody, your beginning, the perp you have no purpose in your origin. You just were an accident and you came out of the mud and you, so that your, your existence means nothing and you're going to a place where you're just going to die and then go into the dirt and that means nothing. So you have nothingness on one hand and then nothingness on the other hand. And if, if they preach that there's no purpose in the origin or in our death, then I feel like they should at least have the intellectual honesty and the guts to say that our existence has no purpose and life is meaningless, but they won't say that part. They say, no, you matter, you're, you're important. Why? If, if I'm just a meaningless goo and I'm going to meaningless goo, what is the point of this part? Be honest. Then we see the example of labor. Verse eight, all things, Solomon says, are full of labor. Man cannot utter it. It's, it's just beyond words is what that means. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. In other words, mankind spends his life laboring to satisfy his eyes and his ears. He's curious to see things, to hear things in this world. 
But no matter how hard he works and how far he goes to fulfill those, his ears and his eyes, he's never satisfied. The ears and the eyes are never fully satisfied. He always wants a little more. The search never ends. It's a squirrel in the cage on a wheel. I'm running, but I'm not really getting anywhere. Verse nine, the thing that hath been, it is that which shall be. And that which is done is that which shall be done. And there is no new thing under the sun. Is there anything whereof it may be said, see, this is new. Ah, it hath already been of old time, which was before us. Interesting phrase. We say it around, around here. People say it. No new, no new thing under the sun. There's nothing new under the sun. Here's an example for you. If you were to take a newspaper go back, uh, from 50 or 100 years ago and pull that out and start reading the newspaper, guess what that newspaper would say? Things like, such and such country is threatening war. Such and such po- politician said this, and this other politician disagreed and said that. Uh, our economy is at risk. This new technology that we have is the greatest ever. This famous person just died. This sports team just won the pennant. Same stuff we read today, just different names. The same, 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 same. Pretty soon you will find on the search for new that history is really just repeating itself. If it's new, it's just new to you. Life is the same old, same old, same stuff, different names. Yeah, there might be new technology, but is it really new? God's just using the same stuff that God has placed under the sun. The truth is there's really nothing new. But remember, we're talking about under the sun. There's nothing new under the sun. But there are many things that are new in Scripture. Scripture tells us above the sun. When you give your heart to the Lord, when you bring God into the picture, here's a few things. You get a new name, a new community, a new commandment, a new covenant, a new purity, a new nature, a new creation in Jesus Christ. And and in 2 Corinthians it says that all things become new for the believer. So to the believer, all things are new. But if you're just looking under the sun, there's nothing new. And last example this morning that, that we're going to look at, is that, and that is the example of history. Verse 11, there is no remembrance of former things, neither shall there be any remembrance of things that are to come with those that shall come after. He's talking about this, the, the typical cycle of discovery and forgetting. We all go through this. Things feel really nice and shiny for a moment. This thing that we get, we think this is great, but then we throw, that, throw it away and forget about it. People feel this way with cell phones. As soon as you get that cell phone, ooh, this is nice, new phone, wow, look at all these cool features. But then the next model comes out a few months later, and you look at your phone, and you're like, man, this is old and clunky. This doesn't do anything good. Look how nice that one is. It's so much better. And let me get rid of this. And we have this cycle of, of history that, you know, we just throw stuff away. It looks good for a moment, but then we forget about it, and who cares? The, the, the trash dump is full of stuff. But it's not just stuff, it's people too. Remember, we talked about earlier the generations that are coming and going. Consider this for a minute, ask yourself this question. Do you, do you, know, do you know the names of your grandparents? Sure, you probably do. You know the names of your grandparents. Well, uh, wh- what about this? Do you know the names of your grandparents' grandparents? Probably not. Maybe a few of you do. Well, guess what? Your great-great-grandkids will probably not know your name. They will not know your name. 
Our, all of our life is very short. It's very brief. Aren't you glad to be here this morning? Aren't you so encouraged? Thanks, Pastor Luke. Boy, feeling great. <laughs> Please bring Pastor Mike back. This is horrible. My, my, my grandfather, he, he was a hero of mine. My dad's dad. Just, a, just an amazing, amazing guy. Amazing man. Loved the Lord. Powerful uh, man of God. But my kids don't really know him. It breaks my heart. I wish they could have known him. It makes me sad, but that's how this works. And, that's, and that, guess what, will be me one day. Our lives will be reduced to a dash on a grave marker. And this is just how the world works under the sun. And when it's your time, <laughs> they will have a service for you. Everybody will gather around, say a few nice, nice things. Maybe it'll last about an hour. And then they'll go and have a, a nice little dinner for you. Uh, not really for you, because <laughs> for themselves, they're going to stuff their face with sandwiches, and then they're going to go on with life. It's not a fun reality, but it's true, and the sooner we face it, the better. And that's what we're trying to help everybody around us face. The sooner we face this, the better. We, we need to get desperate enough to stop looking under the sun for meaning. We need to look above the sun. We need to get our eyes to, to Jesus. Psalm 107 and verse 9. Listen to this. For he, that is God, satisfieth the longing soul and filleth the hungry soul with goodness. See, that's where satisfaction actually does come from. You actually can have satisfaction. You actually can have fulfillment. You can have that hunger filled. But it's by Jesus and it's by him alone. Only our Lord can satisfy. Let's all bow our heads. For we hope you enjoyed listening to the preaching and teaching from God's Word today. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. From all of us here at The Home Church in Lodi, California, thank you for joining us.